name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Today we're going to look at the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So before we actually delve into the, the carol itself, I want to tell you a little bit about the author's author and how it came about. So the author of this carol is a, is a man by the name of Charles Wesley. You've heard a lot about his brother, John Wesley, maybe not so much about Charles Wesley, but I learned a lot of things this week that I'm excited to tell you, or, or just, I don't know, just, they were encouraging to me. I hope they'll be encouraging to you. John and Charles were two of um, Samuel and Susanna Wesley's 19 children. So David and Tammy, you have nothing on the, on the Wesleys. And uh, they were towards the end, at least uh, Charles, I think, was the next to last child or the actually youngest child, one or the other. And, um, and their dad was actually a pastor, a rector in the uh, Anglican church. Their mother, of course, was a really godly woman, and she was really instrumental, I think, in, in leading her children to care about spiritual things. I remember the story from when I was a young Christian uh, reading or hearing about Susanna. She would, you know, with so many children, where do you go to find alone time, right? So she would sit in her kitchen, put a kitchen towel over her head, and that's where she had her devotional time with the Lord in the mornings, and her children knew that, uh, that you do not bother mom when she's got a towel over her head because she's, uh, she's having her time with the Lord. And obviously it paid off, especially with these two young men, but I imagine some of their, if not all, their other children as well. Now, John and Charles, their temperaments were very different, but they ended up following some of the same, the same storyline, if you would, or lifeline. They both went to Christ Church, which was one of Oxford's uh, largest colleges. I'm not sure how that worked. Uh, John was older. Older. He went in 1720. Charles went in 1726. And um, Charles, his first year there at Oxford at this, uh, at this college was pretty much, pretty much uneventful. But by the time he got to his second year, Charles had formed this thing they called the Holy Club. And it was uh, for men who really wanted to pursue a disciplined Christian life, if you would. They were serious about Bible study and praying and fasting and doing good works. And Charles, listen to this, Charles was the first one of the two brothers to be called a Methodist. And uh, it was kind of a, a derision. It was not a positive thing. Oh, you're a Methodist. No, it was like, you're a Methodist. And, and, and then what they meant was, you're very methodical in your in your dealings with God. And so they meant it as an as a insult. He took it as a badge of, of honor. His brother, John, who had already graduated, came back. He was part of the Holy Club. But somebody else, and I'll talk about this more in a few moments, but somebody else who was a part of the Holy Club was a man by the name of George, George Whitfield. In 1735, the, the two Wesley brothers accompanied General uh, Oglethorpe on a second missionary journey to Georgia to, meet, uh, to, to reach the Indians. And from their vantage point, it was a complete failure when they returned home. They didn't feel like they had accomplished anything. And John Wesley wrote uh, of his experience in Georgia, which, which gives us a little insight into his heart and, and by extension, his brother's heart. This is what he wrote. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? They really felt like they had been a failure. And one of the things that we may not have realized is that John and Charles Wesley, in, in spite of the uh, their upbringing and all, they always struggled with whether they had a relationship with God. They always wondered if they were doing enough, if they'd been on enough mission trips, if they had, you know, prayed enough and all the things that they were trying to do in their disciplined Christian life. They were always very insecure in their relationship with God. But soon after coming back from uh, from America, they met some Moravian Christians, and this would end up changing their life, their lives. And these Moravian Christians, they spoke of how salvation was by grace through faith in Jesus. It wasn't because we've managed to do enough good works. 
that God loves us. If we just do enough, God's going to love us. That's kind of how they were operating. But these Moravians said, no, God loves you. And grace is, God wants to save us by grace, mediated through faith in him. And this would change their lives. And just a few days after getting back, Charles Wesley was the first to put his faith just in Jesus, apart from his endeavors and his works. And, uh, and he, would, he would write that uh, that night it felt like the Spirit of God, and I quote, chased away the darkness of my unbelief. So Charles Wesley actually put his faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone before his brother John did. His brother John was three days later, May 24th, 1738. John Wesley did the same. And he speaks of that night as well and how the change came, apart, uh, came upon them and how their lives changed after that. And it really did. Now, after, after this change in their lives, Charles began to write songs and hymns. He wrote songs about all these experiences. And for lack of time, I'm not going to tell you all the things I wanted to tell you, but he wrote Six to 7,000 hymns. And he would write most of these, these songs while, while riding on a horse because he was an itinerant revivalist or preacher. And uh, his hymns would be packed, they said, with sensitivity, but also with much theological depth. His songs were said to be filled with beauty and brawn, theological brawn, that is. And uh, he would tell the story that when he would be on the horse and an idea would come to him, and he, he, he would get off his horse so he could write down the song that, uh, that he had just come up with. He wrote the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that we're going to be looking at this morning. But listen to this. He also wrote the song that we sing on Resurrection Sunday, which if I was to ask you, I did this and somebody didn't get it, so I'm not going to ask you what's the most famous Resurrection Sunday song. But in my mind, anyway, the most famous Resurrection song is Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Well, that's a John, I mean, it's a Charles Wesley song. He wrote that song. And when he wrote Hark the Herald Angels and, and then this one, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, or not that one, this one, that one, whatever. When he wrote those two songs, he wanted them sung with the same tune. Now, they're not sung, neither one of them are sung with his tune, okay? But he wanted them uh, sung to the same tune. There were no copyright laws back then. And so when you wrote a song, you know, there was no personal, hey, it's my song. If you're going to use it, you got to use it exactly the way I wrote it or pay me royalties or whatever. There was none of that. And, and so people would use everybody else's stuff. And people loved his Hark the Herald Angels Sing song. And they used his song. And they used a lot of his songs. Remember, he wrote 6,000 of them. And uh, they would use his songs. And one of the things he would say is, nobody can mend my songs. And what he meant by that was, I spent hours on the horse writing these songs. You can't improve on my songs. At least that's how he felt. And it irritated him that people would take his songs and change the words. So Jamie, you know how you like to change words. And I like to change words. And, um, and anyway, Charles did not like us changing his words. And if you changed his words, he always asked that you would put in the margin of your, when you printed his song, you'd put in the margin that you had changed his words and that these weren't his words. And the reason he said he wanted that is because he didn't want anybody to hold him accountable for their, quote unquote, their nonsense and their doggerel. And doggerel, if I'm even pronouncing it right, is another word for nonsense. He did not want to be accountable for the nonsense that they were writing. One particular truth that I, I really have always loved about John Wesley and Charles Wesley, again, I always thought this was John Wesley and George Whitfield, but Charles was just as much in the mix as John. And one of the things I've always loved about them was the fact that George Whitfield was a Calvinist and John and Charles Wesley were not. And yet these guys loved each other and, and in spite of their soteriological differences or understanding of soteriology, and soteriology, big word for meaning the doctrine of salvation, the truth of salvation, they, they had some different opinions about that, but they still loved each other. I, I heard this story when I was a young believer that uh, John Wesley, I mean, George Whitfield, somebody was asking George Whitfield, and by the way, George Whitfield was probably the most famous American in his time. The most famous Englishman, not just American, but most famous Englishman of his day. 
I mean, he, he rivals whoever you might think is the most famous person today. He was it. And he was a, he was a tremendous evangelist. Anyway, uh, somebody once asked George Whitfield, pitting him against John Wesley. Remember, John, Charles, and George were all part of the Holy Club there at Oxford, right? But somebody once asked George, thinking, I guess, whatever, they're trying to get him to say something bad about John. But they said, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And George Whitfield said, I absolutely don't think so. And he paused for a moment. And he said, John will be so close to the throne, I won't be able to see him from where I am. So uh, you, you got to appreciate the love they had for one another. But it was, it was George Whitfield that introduced Charles Wesley and John, I'm assuming by extension. But he introduced Charles in particular to the itinerant preaching that he did. He invited him to come to one of his meetings and preach. And, and from that moment on, Charles uh, became an, I'm getting goosebumps, became this itinerant preacher that traveled uh, America as a revivalist, basically preaching the good news that Jesus saves by faith. And so George and John, I think actually John Wesley, uh, of the three of them, I believe this is right, John, or maybe John just outbeat George, uh, Charles, I'm not sure. I think John had the most hours on horseback for the most preaching uh, in, his, in his lifetime. We talked about John uh, Wesley a few weeks ago when it comes to his giving. But, uh, but anyway, all that to say, remember I told you how you take songs and you would change them? Well, actually, George Whitfield published... Uh, Charles Wesley's song that we're going to be looking at today. He published it in his hymn book and he changed the words on him. And, uh, and so uh, he changed the, the words. That in, in, Charles wrote this song in 1739, one year after he'd come to understand faith versus works. He was 32 years old. And what he wrote was this, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. That was the first line of his song. I'll say it again. Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. I know you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm glad George Whitfield changed it. <laughs> but welkin is an old English word that means heaven. So basically, Whitfield changed the words to what we sing today. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Because I guess he felt like the song was a very Christmassy song, and I think probably Charles meant it that way. But, you know, anyway, I like George Whitfield's words better than Charles's do, right? And, um, but the, so he changed the words in his song, and, and they have stuck over the years. Now, like I mentioned to you, the tune that he wanted was the same tune for Christ the Lord is Risen Today, but uh, the music we sing it by today is not anything that Charles Wesley or even George Whitfield wrote. So in 1855, William Cummings adapted the song to a piece of work done by Felix Mendelssohn, who was, uh, I think, a Jewish man who became a, a follower of Christ. I believe that's true, but he was a, a prodigy when it came to music. And by the time he was 12 years old, Felix had written, 12 symphonies, and he wrote a composition that they loved in England called the Fest, and uh, help me out, Augusta, how do you pronounce Festigassen or something like that? Well, your German's not up to, up to, okay, <laughs> your six-week German didn't do it, but anyway, he adapted the song to that, and so that's what we sing it to today, this, this, this tune that the English, that Felix had written, that they lo he loved it so much, he adapted the song to, uh, to that music. So that's how we got the song. Let's actually look at the song. It's written on your bulletin there, and uh, it's been, it, Charles Wesley wrote five verses. It's been distilled down to three. I'm going to have a hard time getting through all the stuff I want to tell you with just three verses, though I do plan to read the verses at the end, at the end of this. But let's look at the first verse. It's in your bulletin, like if you want to read it along. It says, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Well, verse 1 begins with an exhortation for us to stop and listen. That's what the word hark means. It means listen. And so John Wesley wrote, again, a slightly differently, but he wrote, hark, listen to the angels sing, glory to uh, the king of kings or glory to the newborn king. Wesley's message was, and this first verse is saying it, it's a proclamation that Messiah has been born in Bethlehem and we're to give glory to this, this king of kings, this newborn king. And it's obvious that Charles is referencing what? 
the shepherd story, right? He's referencing the shepherd story when they're out in the fields and the angelic hosts come and begin to proclaim to them about the birth uh, of Jesus that, that has happened and they're to go, uh, go and see. And so if you would, Charles interprets the angelic message as what where Charles writes, God and sinners reconciled. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. He's basically interpreting the message that they gave and said, hey, listen, God has reconciled or is beginning to reconcile himself or provide the means by which we would be reconciled to God. In fact, I would suggest that the coming of Jesus is the beginning of the implementation of God's strategy by which he will justify and justly justify us, reconcile us to himself through the giving of his son and the death of his son some 33 years later. So he, uh, so he, the, the passage in, uh, in Luke 2, the Christmas story says, do not, the angels say, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David is a savior. A savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, Gabriel had told Mary and had told Joseph just, I guess, soon before this, a few months before this, had told him, especially Joseph, this is what he says to Joseph. He says, Mary will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus, which means, by the way, Emmanuel, we'll come to that in a little bit, because he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus came to bring peace and, uh, by reconciling us to God. And Charles says we should join this triumphant, joyful shout of the, of the angels. We should join with them and we should proclaim with joy that this king has been born, this savior has been born, this one who's going to reconcile us to God. He has been born. And I think one of the reasons why we as Englishmen and Americans have loved the tune that was put to this song because Mendelssohn's, Mendelssohn's music, there's just something about it that just kind of, it's joyful, right? It's joyful. And so the words that Charles wrote put, put to this joyful music, I mean, it's a, it is a, a mixing of two perfect things, if you would, into one, this song that really conveys, really conveys great joy. So what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time is I'd like to look at the second two verses. Because the second two verses, I believe, and again, I can't be sure this is what Wesley intended to do, but it's what, it's what I see in the song, so I'm, I'm going to think that this is what he was trying to do. And the rest of the, the song, the next two verses, what I believe that Wesley does is gives us two overarching themes in his song. And, and here are the two themes. One of them is, who is this king who's been born in Bethlehem? Who is he? You know, and then the second theme is, what did he do? Who is he and what did he accomplish? And so my plan is to look at those two themes. And I, f I think we find them in the, the two verse. I had originally started off just going line by line, but I, I laid awake one night and I felt like a better way of presenting this to you was to look at these two themes that seem to have emerged through these two verses. And there's four assertions under each theme. There's four things I believe Charles wants to say to us and that we proclaim when we sing this song. There are, four, there are four assertions, four statements about each of these two themes. So let's read the two verses, uh, the last two verses that are in your bulletin together. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with, men, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And the last verse, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So let's look at the two themes. Everybody understand what I'm going to do? I'm going to look at those two verses, and I'm going to tell you two, two themes that I see in those verses, and I'm going to give you four assertions under each theme. So here's the first theme. Who is this newborn king? Who is this Messiah? Who is this anointed king who's been born in Bethlehem? He's four things. Number one, he is the everlasting Lord, uh, Charles suggests. Christ, the everlasting Lord. The Messiah is the eternal one. He's the one with no beginning and no end. Psalms 90 
verse 2 says, or Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the productive land, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the idea is that this being that we called God, we call God, has no beginning. He didn't have a start. He wasn't born. He was never created. And he has no end. He cannot die. He will not die. He exists forever. Now, it's really hard for us to mentally grab that. Children say that. If we're adults, we'd admit it. It's really hard to understand how anything could have no beginning and no end. And last week, I told you about this being that we call God. Remember this? We said that, hey, you and I are a being, a human being, and we're one person with, the, with who we are, right? We're a, one, we're a human being, and we're one person. Well, God is a being, and we believe that he's the only one of his kind that exists. He he is a being and he's three separate persons. He's, he's not just one person. One thing else about this being is that he was not created. He, he doesn't have a start. Now, I want to give you something I thought I found helpful. Maybe it'll help you. If I were to ask you to point out the corner of a circle you wouldn't be able to do it, right? Because by definition, circles don't have corners. If it has a corner, it's not a circle anymore. In the same way, God as a being, his being doesn't have a beginning by, by virtue of who he is being-wise. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. And in the same, in this God, this being that we're talking about here, Jesus, he has always been the everlasting God. Apart from a time where he submitted himself to death, he is the everlasting God. Charles reminds us that he, he was by Christ, what he says in the song, he says, Christ by highest heaven adored. Messiah is worshipped in heaven, and he's worshipped in heaven. He's worshipped because he's the everlasting one. He's worshipped prior to his incarnation. But then he's also worshipped in his incarnation. So the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, he would say this, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him a name that is above every name, that at his name, everyone in heaven and on earth will bow before him in worship and acknowledge him as Lord. And so, you know, we go back to the passage again that we looked at last week in Daniel where Jesus comes before the ancient of days and it says that God has given him a dominion and everybody worships him, right? He's the everlasting Lord. He's always been. No beginning, no end. Jesus has the second person of this God being, has never begun and he never began. He began now in his incarnation in some form, right? But he never had a beginning here and he'll never have an ending here, even in his coupled humanity. Secondly, Charles says, this being is, or this, this Christ the Lord who's been born for us, he is the Prince of Peace. He says, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Now, here, here the verse asserts that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And in the passage that David read for us this morning, it's the, we looked at it last week, and four names given to him, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. There's that term, Everlasting Father again, Prince of Peace. There are at least two reasons that I believe that God designates his son as the prince of peace. Number one, he brings peace between us and God. Here's the verse. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's Paul writing to the church at Rome. He's basically saying Jesus brought peace between us and God so that we can have life with him. The second thing he says, though, about, about the Lord Jesus bringing, being the Prince of Peace is he brings peace between us and each other. So here's Ephesians. To the church at Ephesus, Paul would write, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in context, what... What Paul is talking about is he's talking about this divide, this wall between the, the Jews ethnically and the rest of the world. And he says, Jesus tore down that wall. And we, we don't have a dividing wall there anymore. We are God's people by faith. And he's brought peace between all of us. But I, I want to go a step further and say one of the things that Jesus did by his coming, by changing us and giving us a new nature, is that he made it possible for us to have peace with, with each other when we follow Jesus 
When, when, when both of us are following Jesus, there, he brought peace between us. You know why? Because he's eradicating our selfishness. He's destroying our selfishness. And he's, he's, he's causing us to prefer one another as more important than ourselves. He's, he's changing us from the, from the inside out, which brings peace. So, so it's not me against you and you against me or you against each other. He brings peace between all of us. I read this great quote this week. I want to read it to you. Because I want to tell you that the peace that he brings between us, it's not an automatic thing, right? Just because you begin to follow Jesus doesn't mean you're going to be at peace with one another. In fact, we come to Jesus just as we are. And unfortunately, it takes a long time for us to really begin to change, right? And so we don't, sometimes we don't have peace. But I read this great quote. This is a pastor speaking. He says, in all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person. <laughs> then you see the person. Then you see their maturity. And uh, so that's my point. He does bring peace between us, but that peace is a, it's a growing peace as I mature in Christ and I learn to die to myself and I learn to live in, uh, with preferring you as more important than myself. So he brings betwe- peace between us. Thirdly, he says, okay, he's the everlasting, uh, he's the everlasting, what do you call him? The everlasting Lord. He's the Prince of Peace. And the third thing is he's the Son of Righteousness. Hail the Son of Righteousness, verse three, I think it is. Not only is Jesus the Prince of Peace, but he's the Son of Righteousness. Now, here's another place where George Whitfield changed his words. So uh, Wesley had written Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. Whitfield changed it to S-O-N, Son of Righteousness. And I remember when I've read the song in the past, I'm like, well, I like that. And when I learned that it was Whitfield that changed those words, I'm like, yeah, I like that, Son, S-O-N. But you know, having studied the song, I think Charles was right. He should have left it as S-U-N. The reason I say that is because Charles Wesley is quoting from Malachi chapter 4. Listen to what Malachi chapter 4 says. It says, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the uh, Lord of the armies, not leaving them root or branches. But you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings. The Son, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise, healing in his wings, and you'll go forth and playfully jumping like calves from a stall. Regardless of whether you spell it S-O-N or S-U-N, here's what, here's what Charles Wesley wants to convey in his song. And here's what you and I should sing every time we sing it, that Jesus is the embodiment of what it means to be righteous and holy and morally perfect. Jesus is our son of righteousness because he never failed God. And our goal and our aim should be to be transformed into into, into his image, to be like him, to be so transformed that we look and act and think just like Jesus. He never sinned. Jesus never sinned. He never failed God. He never disappointed God. Is he limited in his humanity? Absolutely. He cannot fly. He cannot walk through walls. All kinds of things. All the things that are limitations for us were limitations for him. However, he was not sinful in any way. He is the son, the the emblazing righteousness of God. Charles Wesley says, sing that every time you sing this song. He is, the final thing is here, he's the everlasting God, Prince of Peace, radiance of God's righteousness, but he is the the God who became human. And if there's one truth that Charles Wesley wants us to sing in this song, this is it, that God became a man like us. He became a person like us. And so he kind of repeats this theme, I mean, this, this statement in this theme over, who is he? He's the God who became human. And he has like four statements here that point to this, that communicate this truth. The first one is in the second verse, offspring of a virgin's womb. The Old Testament predicted it. The New Testament confirms it. Jesus was born engendered, not like us. Every one of us in this room had a daddy who gave male genetic material to a mother who gave female genetic material, and we were born from that gift of life that God gives us. Jesus was not born that way. The Bible says that God himself gave the genetic material from the male side. He gave the genetic material that would make up the Lord Jesus. So we're not Mormons. The Mormons aren't right when they say Jesus came and actually had sex with Mary. 
They're not right. They're wrong. The Bible says she was empowered or overshadowed by the Spirit of God. However God did it, um, you know, it wasn't like that. And he's the also, so that God gave the material that would produce Jesus in his humanity, that, that's why he is the offspring of a virgin's womb. And it's also why he's called the God-man or the Son of God. Now, some folks say it doesn't matter whether he was born of a virgin. I say absolutely it matters that he was born of a virgin. Why? Because he, by being born through God's work, he decouples Jesus from Adam's line. And the Bible says that all of us as sons of Adam have inherited a nature that's got a proclivity towards sin, that's fallen from the very beginning, that's cursed with Adam's nature. Jesus did not have that. And and though he was fully human, he did not have Adam's fallen and broken nature. He's the offspring of a virgin's womb. Secondly, he says, veiled in flesh, the the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh. Another line testifying to this astounding truth that Jesus is God become a person. To the average person who saw Jesus, they would say, oh, it's just like Micah Beachy or Jimmy Acree or whatever. But he'd be wrong because the person that they were talking to was actually the creator of everything who had veiled himself in our humanity. He would become like us. His, he, he was cloaked, if you would, uh, in, in, our, in our humanity. So you didn't see him. You missed the fact that he's God because he's cloaked in our humanity. Thirdly, he says, hail the incarnate deity. And these are statements that Charles just brings one right after the other. Hail the incarnate deity. Charles calls us to honor. And again, remember the word incarnate comes from the Latin to, from the word flesh. Here's the God who became flesh, he says. And then he says, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And the word Emmanuel means God with us. And here he identifies who this God is that's now with us. It's Jesus. Jesus is the God who became flesh, who dwelt among us. That's what the word Emmanuel means. That's kind of the, the word Yeshua, Jesus. That's the meaning of that word as well. And Charles here identifies Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Jesus. So when you sing the song and you sing those words that it says, uh, Jesus, our Emmanuel, we're saying Jesus is the one who was God, who became one of us. Now, along with these testifying four statements about who Jesus is, there's, there's three corollary truths that Charles gives us to this incarnation. Here, here's the first one. Late in time, behold him come. You see it in the text? What does he mean? Oh, God was late to the party. He missed his, he missed his taxi and showed up late. No, that's not what Charles means. What Charles means is that Jesus didn't come for hundreds, if not thousands of years after God had begun the creation thing, right? Jesus came years after that. Why did he come at that time? Well, I don't really know. The apostle Paul says it was the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a, born of a woman, uh, born into the law to redeem us from the law. It was in the fullness of time. But here's what Charles means. It means a lot of years had passed before Jesus came. Late in time, he came. It was, it had many years had passed since the beginning, but he came in the fullness of time. Here's the second corollary truth. He says, pleased as man with man to dwell. I love this line. I love this line because it says, Psalm 115 says that God sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases. I'm going to tell you something. It pleased God to become one of us. Why would God lower himself? Why would God humble himself? I don't know, but he didn't hate it. It pleased him to do it. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He did it because he wanted to, and he did it, I think, because he loves us. He loves you, Reese. That's why he did it. He loves us. He did, he, pleased as man with man to dwell. Did it because he loves us. And then the third one, mild he lays his glory by. The empowered eternal being, the second person of this, this non-created eternal being would lay aside the glory of his heaven. And he's worshiped by all the angelic beasts, uh, not beasts, all the angelic beings that he had created. And he would humble himself. Not come in power, but come in humility. And he would come in humility, and in a mild way, he'd lay aside his glory, and he'd become like us. All right, that's the first theme. Here's the second theme. The second theme that Charles tackles is 
What's our time? The second the theme that Charles tackles is what he did. So first, Charles says, this is who he is, the everlasting God, the Prince of Peace, the incarnate God. And here now he says, this is what he did. This is what he accomplished. So in this song, hail, hail, hark, hark, stop, listen to what the angels say. The, the newborn king has been born. Here's who he is. Now here's what he did. Number one, he brought us light, Charles says. He brought us light. And uh, in, I'm not sure what verse it is. I didn't write it down. But in, in the verse he says, uh, light and life to all he brings. I think that's how the verse goes. So in, he's, uh, what's he referencing there? You Bible students, what's he referencing? John chapter 1, right? Remember as John begins his gospel, he says that he was the light of the world. And he was the life of the world. So the first thing is light. Jesus, John tells us, Charles reminds us that Jesus brought light into the world. Here's, here's what John the apostle wrote at the beginning of his gospel. In Jesus was life and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the true light that gives light to the everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, and the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus himself would say, I am the light of the world, okay? So here's the question. When, when he says, when, when Charles says he came as the light and he's quoting John, when, when John's, what is he talking about? What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Well, here's what I think he means. I'm interpreting, I get it. So you can, you can say I'm not right, but he, he means he's come to reveal to us what is true. He's come to reveal truth to us. And even more specifically, he's come to reveal who God is in a clear and brilliant way so that we could know just the very heart and attributes of God. Because here's the deal, everyone. When you look at Jesus, you've seen God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. That's what God is like. Because that is God become one of us. Now, the Bible says that God has revealed himself in creation. And uh, he's revealed himself in, in Romans chapter 3. He says he's revealed himself in our hearts, even if we don't have the Bible, okay? But, but the light of Jesus, Jesus is the light because he gives us such clarity. I mean, it's, it's, he tells us who God is in, in specific. Let me see if I can illustrate. I got a carport at home. And, um, and it had a 60-watt bulb in the middle. And you know, when you turn the switch on for my carport light, I mean, you could hardly see anything. But you could see there was a 60-watt bulb up there. But I got one of those newfangled LEDs. It looks like one of Darth Vader's fighter planes. You know what I'm talking about? It's got the three wings on it. I put it out there. I mean, you've got to wear sunglasses in my carport right now, right? I, I, you know, the revelation of the light of God through Jesus is the brightest LED that you can imagine. And when we proclaim his name, when we proclaim Jesus, we are telling everyone who God is. And uh, anyway, let me just leave that there. He brought life, I mean light, and then he says he brought life. It says light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. He brought life. Uh, Jesus was born not just to bring us knowledge about God and, and, and understanding who God is clearly and completely, but he came to bring us life, life. He has life in himself. Now, here, here's what I think that means. I, I think that where death is the wages of sin, Jesus came to fix that. Jesus came to remedy that. Jesus came to reverse our death and give us light. Life. Every one of us, that you, every one of you who hear my voice, you know, uh, you're alive now because you're hearing my voice, but you're not going to be alive. Uh, you know, some of us, maybe not all that long from now, are not going to be alive, right? You just never know. So Jesus came to reverse that, and he came, he came and was born, and he came to give us life. And I believe that's what Charles is talking about. He's not talking about rescuing us from the fact that it's appointed for man once to die, but he's, he's coming to give us our life back after death. 
So in Malachi chapter 4, let's go back because there's absolutely no doubt Charles Wesley is quoting from this passage. He says, and I want to read it to you again, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them a root or branch. But for you who fear fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you'll go out and playfully jump like calves from the stalls. And you will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies, says the, the Lord of armies. I think, I think the Malachi passage clearly is talking about the day that God restores our life to us. And I think the passage where it says, where he follows life with healing in his wings, it's talking about the resurrection from the dead. It's talking about God giving us our life back and raising us from the dead. Jesus came to bring us hope of resurrection and hope of life after death. You remember when Paul was talking on, on, uh, there in Athens and he was on the, on the mountain with all the great philosophers and you remember that they listened to him until he said one thing. He said, Jesus came to resurrect you from the dead and they started laughing at him and scoffing at him and they wouldn't listen to him anymore when he talked about that. In the book of Ezekiel, God takes Ezekiel out to a valley and, uh, and, and in the valley, he takes him and, and evidently in the valley, there's just bones scattered all over the valley. And God says to Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, can those bones live again? And I love Ezekiel's answer. He says, God, only you know whether they can. And then in the store, if you remember it, or the vision, or whatever it was that Ezekiel experienced that day, the bones began to rattle, and I can imagine the dust began to move in his vision, right? And all of a sudden, bones began to form and come back together. And the next thing Ezekiel knew was there was skeletons standing everywhere. And then God, I guess, man, what a, what a, what a vision, right? Meat began to form on their bones, and sinew, it says, and all of that. And then skin covered them. And, and then the Bible says that God blew the breath of life into all these dead corpses, and they all began to live. I, I think God is giving us a picture of what God's going to do, and I think that's what Charles is alluding to here. This one who came, this one who was born that day, came to restore our lives to us one day, because the truth is if Jesus tarries, you will all die You will all, and if Jesus really tarries, you will return to the dust of the earth. You'll be no more. And it says here, it says he was born, uh, he was born to, uh, I'm sorry, let me go back. It says, the Malachi passage, he says, uh, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's a quote from the Malachi. I think it's talking about the resurrection from the dead. But let's just assume for one moment that I've got it wrong, okay? And that's not what he means. It, you know, Charles Wesley does mean what I'm saying, though, because he says just a little bit later in his song, born to raise the sons of men. Jesus was born to raise us from our death. Jesus died death undeservedly so that he could be the just, he could be just and the justifier of those who by faith trust him. Jesus was born to die. And this is what he said. This is what he said. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this would be a good place to talk to you and mention to you that the incarnation is inextricably linked to the death of Jesus. Guys, we can't have Christmas without Easter. We can't have Christmas without the resurrection of Jesus because they go together. Jesus was born. God was born like us so that he could die for us. So that he could be the propitiation, the the sacrifice, the payment for our own death. So that he could pay it for us. And so what that God became one of us if he doesn't die to pay for our sin? That's what he says, not what I say. say. Jesus came to die for us. And Charles says, born to raise the sons of men. Number three. He brought, let me go back so I can remember, he brought light, he brought life, and he brought immortality. Born that man no more 
may die. Jesus was born for the purpose of rescuing us from our impending death so that we would never die the second death. The Bible says that that there is a second death coming. We can define it differently. We do define it differently as believers. But, But he came so that we don't have to die a second time. He came to die for us for the first time and give us immortality. Paul, the apostle, says to Timothy, he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's through the life of Jesus that the immortality, our immortality, has been brought to light. And at the return of Jesus, he raises us to never die again. I believe those who suppress that truth and who reject Jesus, who reject God's truth to them, they will be thrown in what the Bible says is the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation also defines that lake of fire for us. And it says, which is the second death. The lake of fire represents the fact that people will die again. They'll be destroyed and they'll never live again. But you and I, we get to live forever. We get to have immortality and never die. And I'm telling you, that might not excite you, but it excites me. And it excites me, I think, I haven't mentioned it in a long time, but it excites me because I get to see my Shep and I don't ever have to lose him again. We don't ever have to lose any of our loved ones again because those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we shall be made immortal and we shall never die. And I know, listen, if you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Jesus and you've been suppressing truth, I know this sounds fanciful and it says, boy, where this guy's off his rocker. And I, I totally get that. I totally get that because we don't see people rising from the dead. We don't see people being immortal. We see people dying. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Jesus rose from the dead so that one day we too shall rise from the dead and we shall never die again. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe that? And then the last thing in the song, I've got to hurry. And the last thing is he brought a renewed relationship between us and God. And then these are the things that I think Charles wants to communicate. He wants to communicate two big themes about why we should hark the herald, why we should listen to the angels, and then why we should join them in their triumphant proclamation that the king is born. Here's, we should do it because of who Jesus is, and we should do it because of what he's done. And here's the second thing. I mean, here's the last thing of the four things that I've mentioned. Here's the last one. He gave us a, a new birth, born to give them second birth. And this is obviously, you Bible scholars, a reference to what? Somebody? Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus. You must be born again. Remember that? And, uh, and so he's obviously alluding to that. Now, if you go back, Nicodemus doesn't know what Jesus meant, means. He says, what do you mean? Get back in my mother's womb? I can't do that. He has no understanding of what Jesus means. And then that's when Jesus says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, that's hard to interpret. It really is. Christians have had a difficult time understanding what Jesus meant by that. But, but most everyone seems to distill it down to this, that Jesus is saying that we must have a renewed relationship with God, something that only he can bring, a second, a second rebirth, if you would, of a, or of a, a relationship with God. And I want to go back to Ezekiel here because... Uh, I, I think Jesus is, is alluding to this, and obviously I know that Charles is alluding to this new fresh start. But in Ezekiel 36, listen to what God says to Ezekiel. For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people. 
people and I will be your God. Now, obviously, part of that promise has to do with the eternal kingdom when Jesus returns. But, but the part about him giving us a new heart, a, a heart of flesh where we want to obey God and it's not just the written code. Most everybody believes that's what Jesus meant That's what Jesus meant when he said, you must be born again. You must have this experience where God renews your heart, takes out of you the heart of stone and puts a heart of flesh, puts puts a heart that's inclined towards him. And most of us believe that Jesus does that for us when we put our faith in him. I believe that's what Charles is alluding to here. Jesus, what did he do for us? Well, he, he gave us light. He reveals God to us. He gives us life. And that he raises us from the dead, gives us eternal life. He gives us, Im- well, immortality, that's eternal life. He gives us life immortally. And, and here he gives us this renewed relationship with God, this fresh start with the Lord. That's what this king born in Bethlehem does for us. The verse, each verse ends with the refrain repre- repeated, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. I don't have time today to dissect the last two verses, but I do want to read them for you. I think they're going to be on the screen behind me. But, but if not, just listen. Here they are. Come, desire of nations, come. This is Charles Wesley's fourth and fifth verse. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Back to Genesis chapter 3, I think. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruined nature, the nature of of Adam fallen, now restore, now in mystic union join, thine to ours and ours to thine. Deep stuff there, isn't it? He continues in his last verse, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Efface means to erase. Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam, that's from Romans where Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, thou lost, regain thee, the life, the inner man. Oh, to all thyself implant, impart, excuse me, formed in each believing heart. Those are his last two verses. So on this Sunday of December, as we approach Christmas, I'd like to encourage you to hark, to stop, to listen to what the angels said. And then let's all of us join in with those angels and let's proclaim with such astounding joy, Christ the Savior has been born. And who he is, he's the everlasting God. He's the God who became one of us. And what did he do? What did he do? He redeemed us from our sin. He took our death and he gives us life, everlasting life. And he renews our relationship with him for absolutely ever. To him be the praise and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.